the Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Well, hello again. Welcome to this week's episode of the Pediatric Lounge. We will be hosting Dr. Jim Riley, a partner at RBK Pediatrics, board certified in pediatrics, obesity medicine, and lipid disorders. A note to our listeners, I have split the episodes in three parts because of the amount of information. You can always see the complete episode on YouTube and the audio on our website with other references materials. Thank you for listening and help me welcome Dr. Riley. Good morning, George. How are you this Tuesday morning? Hi, Herb. It's Tuesday once again, elevating great physicians. And today we're going to bring Dr. James Riley, a very old friend and one of the partners at RBK Pediatrics. We've been together since too long to count, from residency, 1996, right, Jim? Seven, something like that. The last century. Oh, actually, 93, 94. Good morning, Dr. Riley. So glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. So we start always by asking people, why a pediatrician and why a pediatrician specializing in obesity and lipids? How did you get here? Yeah, so like a lot of people in this space, it starts like with a personal kind of story where, you know, I became a general pediatrician and and really that's what I thought I would always want to do because I, I love, I love ear infections. You know, kid comes in ear infection, you give them amoxicillin, they go away, everyone's happy. But then as time went on, I started having issues in my life where like my wife ended up being very sick and she ended up getting a a breast cancer. And even myself, you know, like my, my dad had a stroke when he was 50 and I started having high cholesterol and I did all the things that people do where I was exercising and doing different things. And my poor baby was getting sicker and sicker. And we hired a nutritionist because it was recommended by a friend and it made a big difference in terms of her health. And, you know, when you're, when you're a doc, you feel like, you know, everything. So I I was kind of like, wow, this is good. Maybe there's something here. And I started reading about it and I just, I just started falling falling down a hole because I just started realizing so many things that I had been taught and had been doing were perhaps not the best. And then it started to lead into why I, you know, like over the course of my career, I'm starting to see so many, so many kids heavy. I really came to a realization that, you know, we have these, these food providers that don't care about health. And then we have a whole generation of health providers that don't care about food and yeah, no. And then everything started to change. And then once you start knowing, you have to share it with your patients. Then I decided to get my o- obesity specialization. And, and then I started worrying more about cholesterol and I became a clinical lipidologist. Tell me, how do you, how do you become an obesity expert? Did you have to go back and do a fellowship? Or did yeah, you do so they have online? different fellowships, but you can actually do a lot of this, like going to conferences and doing independent training and things. So I don't have to actually train with someone, right? Okay. Which is very helpful because there's no, almost no pediatric anything, right? Where are the, we're the orphans of the medical community, right? Yeah. And so a lot of it is just learning what the adult guys do and then trying to adjust everything to pediatrics. Okay. And the lipid certification was the same way. 
oh my gosh, that was the worst. To tell you the truth, I was more proud of myself when I took those boards than I was on my pediatric boards because you know, to tell you true, the pediatric boards for me were fairly easy, but the, the, that one was just all adult medicine. And I had to learn stuff about blood pressure, all this kind of stuff were on the test. And I, I don't know any of that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Nor do we want to know about it. No. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. I remember when, when Jim started doing this, some kind of an email about, was it 10 years ago, Jim? Oh, I, it's, it's, it's been consuming my life. So I, it's yeah. hard to say. So I, I got an email about become an obesity specialist. And I looked at it, I said, wow, this is too hard. Jim, this looks like it's going to be very, very important. You should do this. So he became an obesity <laughs> he's, specialist. He's very good at delegating the tough yes. task to others, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> yeah, George always says that to people. I don't even remember that at all. I mean, to yeah. tell you the truth, that I was, I was already starting. It's like even the medical home, when we did the medical home, I had already spent like 8000 of his money when he, when he realized there was such a thing as the medical home. Right? Yeah. It is kind of like a good way to kind of get like a background mm-hmm. on some of this kind of stuff, but you really don't have to do it, right? It really is for pediatrics, your biggest impact is always when the kids are littler and you already probably know the most impactful things, right? So I have a question about BMIs and growth curves because I see it in the exam room and I don't know how to say this politely, but I'm Spanish speaking so I can say it. So when you get the people from Central America, they're naturally shorter and more stocky than the Anglo-Saxon. And they're constantly on the wrong side of the curves for weight. Mm -hmm. And there is no adjusting for that. And it upsets the parents because sometimes they're not really truly obese. They just have a different body habit. And I wonder what your thoughts are about that we don't really have culturally appropriate growth curves. I mean, there are Guatemalan growth charts specific for people of Central America. Okay. But, you know, a lot of times that also falls into some of our workups, right? Because when I see a kid, for example, and they're six years old and they're going greater than the 95th percentile on the growth chart, a lot of times I'll take a look and see what's going on. And then I'll take a history, history, physical diagnosis. That's, you know, that's what we do, right? And if I see that their liver functions are elevated, I know there's something going on. And if I see their bloods look great, then I know that they're probably metabolically healthy, right? So it's okay. if your plan is to reassure them because they're from Guatemala that they're healthy, I can't even tell that to anybody, right? So I usually have okay. to do a little bit of a workup. And then I usually ask questions like, what are they eating, drinking, all that kind of stuff? You'd be amazed, especially people when they first come to this country, sometimes the advertising in other countries is very predatory. And they'll come into this country thinking that, you know, orange Gatorade is very healthy. And and, you know, that stuff will get you, right? So right. We, have to, we have to do a lot of teaching. Yeah, I see it on second generation. So, for example, the mom's American and the dad is from, I don't know, Honduras or Guatemala, uh, native, native Mexican. And the daughter is just not a skinny white girl. And I'm like, well, she's never going to be a skinny white girl because dad is not a skinny white guy. You know, mm-hmm. that's like trying to think that, you know, I was going to be 6'2 when my mom's five feet tall. That's just not going to happen. You know, it's just part of life. Anyhow, I wanted to know what you think about the screening for obesity in children and adolescents 
from the Preventive Service Tax Force recommended statement? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's an attempt by them to try to give guidelines to people so that way they can get an idea on how to help, you know, our obesity epidemic. But, you know, whenever they do a study like this, that's kind of, you know, 26 visits in a year. I mean, I don't know how many, how many moms they know, but I don't think that they could fit in any more kind of stuff, especially seeing me, you know, 26 times in a year. I mean, geez, Louise, George has to see me every day and he already, it's already too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it, it is the kind of thing that, you know, it, that's not going to be the answer. It's not, you know, the answer can't be where we're spending, you know, thousands of dollars on all these poor kids. Right. But I think that the answer lies really with the pediatricians and realizing what the problem is. And, and it kind of goes also with what you were saying that I really could care less how much a kid weighs. I mean, sometimes people, I think that they get to the, they, they get the idea like when I see someone that I'm looking at the scale or whatever, I, you know, the scales lie, all these things lie, right? I, I'm actually much more interested in what are they doing health-wise. Sometimes I almost forget to see if they lose weight. I mean, that just happened to me yesterday. I had seen a kid that I had seen a few times before, and the kid lost like 15 pounds in just like two months, right? And, you know, it, it was the kind of thing that uh, I'm much more interested in. So since the last time we were here, we were talking, what kind of things have you made? And, and trying to build that change mentality, right? So that way that these things can be carried on after they're out of the room with me. This is fascinating because you're alluding to something that two of our previous guests have touched upon. It's that, that last step, the implementation step. Some of these studies ask us to do things that are impossible. There is no time to see a patient 26 times in a year. They don't want to do it and we don't want to do it. We don't have time for it. So implementation is extremely important in and, coaching. And, 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 and literally my eyes were opened. I mean, you know, this is a journey for me, right? So I went to one of these obesity medicine conferences in Boston, right? It was run by Harvard, right? And, you know, they go there and they, they talk about what they do, right? And I, I know what the AAP recommends, exercise physiologist, all this kind of stuff. And even at Harvard, they don't have enough money. And those guys have more money than anybody else to actually do what they actually say that we should all be doing. So in a way, they're kind of saying, well, you can't take care of obesity, but let me tell you, I don't have any of those things. I take care of obesity every single day, and we're very successful. Wow. And so run me by first, what do you do when you, how do you define an obese patient when you see one within your practice? So first of all, I don't actually call them obese, right? Okay. I, don't, I don't like that because that sounds very, very negative, right? Okay. But, so normally, we actually will go through our charts, and our EMR tracks anybody who has a higher BMI, and we will kind of reach out to those people and offer them what we call nutrition consults, where we'll just go after what they're, what's going on in their life. What are they eating? What are they, how are they sleeping? Are they exercising? All this kind of stuff. And, you know, really these nutrition consults actually branch out to a lot of things, right? So even for other kind of health issues, because really a, a lot of the health issues are related to lifestyle. And then when we have an individual patient, you know, it depends on the age of the patient. If they're two. So, so let me interrupt you for a second. Mm -hmm. So when, let's say your EMR uses the ICD-10 code above 95th percentile for BMI. Yep. Is that what you're using at your screening? It does. Yes. Okay. 
And then when you say nutritional consult, is that you or do you have a nutritionist actually reach out to them? No, that's me. We have, we actually have actually also three other docs that do this. I mean, it, you know, it's actually grown and, you know, patients actually request it and we're constantly needing to add more people, but you know, it, it is actually, it is actually a huge problem. And the nutritional consult is done through telemed or in person? It can be either. Okay. All right. And then after the nutritional consult, you alluded to before, you like to see not just the weight, but you like to see the metabolic profile of the patient? Yeah. So, you know, one of the lies that we were told was that these kids don't get adult problems and they do. So I have three-year-olds pre-diabetic. I have three-year-olds, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I have 14-year-olds that they have PCOS-type symptoms. But we don't find it unless we look for it. And this is one of the things I don't like about these guidelines is that they kind of discourage you from looking for diseases. They kind of make these decisions like population health. But I don't see populations. I see patients, right? I see individuals, right? And I know better what to look for. So we look for these things and we find them. And, you know, luckily I work with great people like George who, you know, they, they order these kind of tests that I need. And, and we find kids all the time, every single that are, are not metabolically healthy. And then, and then that gives you some, a little bit more cachet, a little bit more buy-in from the parents when you can show them, look, this is why I'm torturing you because your kid has liver problems. And if we don't make it go away, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. You know, uh, with guidelines, you know, guidelines, I think we we lost sight of what guidelines are and what the recommendations are. They're not the gold. I mean, it's not the law law. I think they're supposed to guide you. So they give you all these guidelines. It doesn't mean you have to follow every single step. So what we can try to do is you pick out what's practical, what you can actually do and break it up into a daily routine. And then you go forward. But if you follow all 26 steps, it'll just forget about it. I'm not going to do it. It's like in college, you know, read 600 pages by tomorrow. Not going to happen. Well, I I think guidelines were useful in critical care care pathways were useful 20 years ago when I was involved in it Mm -hmm. because we didn't have EMRs. Right. And so, you know, on your asthma patient, you know, you should send them home with inhaled steroid. However, you're rushing through rounds and you forget to write for it, and they go home with beta twos, but not the not the darn steroid inhaler, and they relapse next week. Right. And the only way to defeat that purpose back then was to have a pre-printed form with all the things that they're going to get at discharge, so I could just check them and sign it and move on to the next patient. Now the EMR can do that. You can have standard order sets for your discharge, and you don't have to worry about pathways. You're correct, but. The, what happens is you have so many steps that the steps get in the way of progress. Yes. And then if it gets in the way, the doctor will just shut down and just forget about it. Yes. The other thing with guidelines is that they're made, they're the sausage, diet. they're sausage making. So you have a nurse, a dietitian, a hospital administrator, two pediatricians, an adult asthma specialist, an implementation specialist, a data scientist, a quality expert. And they all have an ax to grind. And so they'll add this or take that out. Or the nursing staff will say, oh, that's too much work. We can't do that before the kid gets discharged. And it gets taken out. 
because you can't convince that one constituency to come along on the program. And so it gets taken out of the critical care, critical care pathway or the guidelines. So you're correct. They, they serve some purpose, but they're not all great. Right. And yeah, so I'm a little curious as to what standard labs do you get when you think a child's in trouble weight-wise? Yeah, so that's, that's always hard to answer, right? So I actually do have a video on our YouTube website that talks about some of this kind of stuff. But it depends on who I see, right? Okay. So... You know, it's the kind of thing, for example, when I see a, a girl that's obese, I mean, a lot of times I'll struggle to help them to lose weight unless their hormones become normal. So I'll do something that a lot of pediatricians won't do. I'll do a check for their for their hormone, full hormone panel. And then, you know, you'd be surprised how many girls you see with elevated testosterone, things like that. I'm usually checking their fasting insulin because if their fasting insulin is elevated, especially, you know, you bring up the Hispanic population and yeah, yo puedo hablar español. So I see a lot of these guys, right? <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that sometimes they'll have hemoglobinopathies that will actually cause their A1Cs to look, look actually normal, but their fasting insulin will be very elevated. And that will be, if you did a two hour glucose and insulin, you would see that they were actually already pre-diabetic and you didn't know. You have to kind of do a little bit more investigation for some of these things. A lot of these kids, they'll have elevated liver function tests because unfortunately that is a, a real problem for me among my Middle Eastern and Hispanic patients. You know, so we usually do a, you know, a full metabolic profile. You know, usually when they come to see me, I have to check them for thyroid at least once you know, just to make sure that's okay. A lot of the girls are, are already low in iron and they've looked at that where your metabolism drops if you're already low in iron. So we'll look at for iron. Yeah, it, it's very hard. There's not a cookie cutter kind of way of taking care of people. You didn't mention vitamin D at all. I, I checked definitely vitamin D because okay. one of the things we see is that when the girls are very low in vitamin D, it's very hard for their hormones to be normal. And that's actually a very typical thing that we'll see that their vitamin D is like 10 and we'll have to put them on 4,000 I use a vitamin D a day. Okay. My grandfather used to make us take a tablespoon of Scott's emulsion of cod liver oil after dinner. That has about, I think it's 1,500 units of vitamin D in it. Mm -hmm. And that was a nightly routine after dinner in my whole childhood. But I think he was onto something. He knew that vitamin D was important and the omega oils for the kids to grow up healthy. No, right? I, mean, I mean, to tell you the truth, omega-3 fatty acids for some of the kids who are very depressed and obese will actually see that their omega-3s are very low and that that causes inflammation in the body. And a lot of this kind of stuff can be triggered by inflammation. Yeah. Wow. It doesn't taste very good. So they, they, we have come along and they do have different things, but usually what I say to people is that, you know, eating fish would be a good way to get your omega-3s and get some of this kind of stuff. Yes. It's a salmon tastes a lot better than Scott's. So you, you're really a clinician. It depends on what it is in front of you that you get a different panel. Does your practice routinely screen for this metabolic? Some of the practices I cover every year where the kid is within the normal weight chart and growth chart, they get you know a metabolic panel, a lipid panel, a CBC, and a vitamin D. And I'm like, if a kid is normal and is growing right, why do we need to test it? Yeah, so if they're normal, we don't check it, right? But but it is recommended that you do a screen at, at a nine or ten, and then around sixteen. So we do do those screens because 
you know, there is such a thing as familial hypercholesterolemia and one out of every 250 to one out of every 500 people actually have that. And then they might have to see someone like me to tell you the truth that, you know, having the kid who's a normal weight and things like that, that's become a vanishing breed. And, you know, we end up doing it a, a lot. And, and it is something that if you know what to look for, for example, if you're looking for fasting insulin, then you'll start to see that the fasting insulin is elevated in a lot of these kids. And then you can actually intervene before they start having a lot of issues. If you're looking at their fasting triglycerides, you'll actually see that they're starting to get into trouble. And a lot of these things are much easier to take care of when you catch them early. We are going to take a break here and come back for episode number two. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week the Pediatric Lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guests.